listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. All right, if you've ever wondered if God could use you, this message is for you. If you've ever wondered if your life is significant to Almighty God, this is a message specifically for you. If you've wondered if God can use you as a factor of influence in the workplace or in your family or in your neighborhood or even in this great state of Pennsylvania or any state you might be listening to if you're listening on the radio or on podcast, this is the message for you. If you've wondered if God could use you to actually change the direction of a nation, This is the message for you. Just so happens that today, somebody else came along with you or somebody else is sitting with you. They're overhearing the message that's for you. This is not a message for them, it's for you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter one, we read this from God's word beginning in verse one. 1 Thessalonians chapter one, verse one. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved of God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. If you don't believe that, you need to read the book of Acts or go back and listen to the messages that we've been covering in the book of Acts. It's obvious, so we're going to see again that God delivered the gospel with power and he still delivers the gospel with power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How do you know what conviction is? There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. There is no condemnation, the Bible says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is always conviction. Condemnation is a vague general thing. It's like the light at the end of the tunnel. It's a train. There's no hope when it comes to condemnation, all right? Condemnation is something that you can't seem to get yourself out from under. There's no hope. There's no deliverance in that. That's the devil's work. He condemns. But the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is very different. When God speaks, he speaks with specificity about an area or areas of our lives that the Spirit of God can change. That's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So when God speaks to you about an area or areas of your life that need to change, it's up to you to say, yes, almighty God. Yes, God, I say yes to you. By the way, that's what humility is. Humility is agreeing with God about the truth and adjusting your life accordingly. That's what humility is. And until you're humble before Almighty God, you'll always be stuck in every area of your life, not just the area of your life that you think you're stuck in. If you're stuck in one area of your life when it comes to God because you're not walking with him in humility in that area, you're not surrendering to him, your whole life is going to be affected by that. The great news is, through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, when God speaks to you about that area or areas, you can surrender it to God, be set free, get out of the mud, and move forward with God. Who wants to go to deeper, higher levels with God in their life than ever before? Of course you do. Of course you do. That won't happen until and unless you become humble 
and say yes to God, agree with him about what he already knows and adjust your life. That's what humility is. This is the point in the message where if you're listening in a car, you pull the car over, you begin to write things down. This is the point in the message for those of us who are here live where you begin to write things down because the things you write down are the things you'll remember, the things you remember are the things you'll apply, and the things you apply about God's word are the things that God will use to change your life. You've gotta cooperate with God when he makes an initiative in your life. When God makes a move, then it's up to you, it's up to me, it's up to each and every one of us to respond. So already, you should be responding to what God is doing in your life through what you've already heard. When the message of the gospel was preached through the apostle Paul, it came with power, with the demonstration of supernatural signs and wonders, with the Holy Spirit and with conviction. God has probably already begun to speak to you about an area or areas of your life that he wants to change. He's probably been doing that through the course of of the entire past week. And guess what? He loves you so much. He cares about you so much. He's going to continue to do that in the course of your life throughout today, throughout this week, and throughout the rest of your life. Aren't you glad that God has not let go of you, that he loves you so much, he cares about you so much, he has given you so much at your disposal through the power of the Holy Spirit that he is your change agent in your life. Are you listening to what God is saying to you today? Are you listening? This is the point where we're already excited about what God is saying to you, what he's promised to you in the Holy Spirit, all right? Verse six, 1 Thessalonians chapter one, you became imitators of us. It's a good thing for people to imitate you if you're following Jesus. In fact, until people are imitating you, you're not doing your job as a disciple maker. The Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples. What is a disciple? Somebody who follows Jesus. Well, that's nebulous. Land that plane, would you please? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means to be a follower of you, Christ follower. People should be able to look at your life and say, I can follow Dwayne, I can follow Sharon, I can follow Rich, I can follow Gloria, insert your name, I can follow you. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, you became imitators of us. That's not blasphemous, that's beautiful. People need to look at your life and say, I want to be like you when I grow up, I want to be like you right now. Your life needs to be worthy of following. Paul is not speaking in a blasphemous way, he's speaking in a beautiful way. You became imitators of us until people are imitating you. You're not really serious about imitating Jesus. You've got to be serious about following Jesus. People will catch on, they'll recognize it. They'll get, they'll get serious about following you because they'll know what a real Christ follower looks like. And haven't you noticed that our nation needs to be revived with a fundamentally different understanding of what a Christ follower looks like? Confession is cheap. Preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. People need to follow you as you're following Jesus. It's a biblical, good, godly thing. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. See how they're inseparable? For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Your circumstances are not bigger than the joy that God can pour out into your life despite the circumstances. There is no affliction, no difficulty. Listen, I'm speaking as a cancer survivor. I almost died four times. Affliction is not bigger than the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can walk with Jesus in joy despite what you're facing. 
It's biblical. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The message of the gospel is going forth and what happened in their lives. Look at this, verse nine. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's a huge verse of scripture. It's true in your life, true in my life. It's about to become true in your life if you haven't yet given your life to Christ. It's true for the Thessalonians. It's true throughout the whole book of Acts as we've been looking at it. This is the story throughout the whole book of Acts. As we're going to turn in just a moment to Acts chapter 19 and continue in this journey together. It's all about God turning people from idols and idolatry, from things that are false, fake, and phony, to the living and the true God. And the Thessalonians were a prime example in Greek culture with dozens of gods and goddesses that they worshiped and they served and they bowed down to and their whole life revolved around them. You know, it's true in the United States of America. We have things that our lives revolve around. They might not be a Greek god or goddess, but a god or a goddess is the thing that affects every area of your life. It's the thing that takes up your time and your money and your energy, and ultimately it's where the affections of your heart are. Look what it says in verse nine. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We tend to forget about that, but there is a wrath that is coming. The judgment of God upon the earth, poured out on all of those who want nothing to do with God. People say, well, that doesn't sound very kind and very loving of God, that he's going to pour out his wrath. Think about it this way. People are pouring out their wrath on God every single day by rejecting him, by thumbing their nose at him, by saying, I want nothing to do with you, and by living a life of idolatry that is not based on the living and true God, but upon a dead and false God. Your money is a dead, false God. Your material possessions are dead, false things. Did your house die for you? Did your car shed its blood on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins? Your clothing, your reputation, all of those things that we give our time and our talents and our money and our energy to, they are dead and they're false compared to the living and true God. You'll never be more free than when you give your life to Christ fully, not just in salvation, but as a matter of lordship. What is that area of your life that you have not yet surrendered to Jesus Christ? What is it? God knows what it is. He's been speaking to you about it already. He's going to continue to speak about that for the rest of your life until you surrender it. Why? Because Jesus wants you to be free. He wants you to be free, free, free. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. You'll never be more free than when you give up your idolatry. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We're in the midst of idolatrous overthrow. Idolatrous overthrow. A group of magicians, those skilled in the magic arts we have seen, 
were so convicted by the Holy Spirit, they gave their lives to Christ and they burned their books in a fire and the value was estimated to be 50,000 pieces of silver, a denarius, 50,000 denarii. If you were to take that and add that up in that day, the equivalent of 137 years wages of a single worker. By the way, without a day off. That's how much they put into the fire and surrendered to the Lord their God because they turned from idols and turned to the living and true God. It's true for the Thessalonians. It was true here in this particular area in Ephesus. And now that's the backdrop behind all of this. God was doing extraordinary miracles through the Apostle Paul. Extraordinary, not typical, not repeatable that people would lay handkerchiefs or take the apron from the apostle Paul, his sweat clothes. In other words, another way of looking at it, they take those clothes, lay them on somebody else. Listen, you think that's disgusting to take his sweat clothes, lay it on somebody for healing. Listen, if I had the opportunity to give up my inability to walk, I could put up with a little bit of somebody's body odor. I'd be happy to do that. If putting something that stunk on me would heal me of my multiple sclerosis, if I had it, or my Parkinson's disease, I would be willing to put up with that. Can I get an amen for that? Because it's all about the power of God and the freedom. A little bit of inconvenience in the here and now, that's gonna set me free, I can deal with that. People were being set free by the handkerchief or the apron from the Apostle Paul that was put on other people. Extraordinary miracles, that's the context of this and God's not over, God's not through with this. Verse 21, look with me at verse 21. Now after these events, what events? The ones I just told you about, okay? After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit, the Holy Spirit, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Paul was a world traveler. He loved sightseeing. Hey, I want to go check out Rome. That's not what it's about. He wants to be led by the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel even to the center of the non-Jewish world, which was Rome, the epicenter. So that's Paul's desire. That's his intention here. Verse 22, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. This is what it's called at that particular time. The way meaning Christianity, not the cult that bears that name today. That is a cult called the way, just like the devil to take what was true and pure and good and right and righteous and to distort it. This is what it was called in the first century. One of the things that was called the way after the whole teaching of Jesus, I am the way, the truth and life. Nobody comes to the father except through me. And so Jesus said that I don't have the right to change what Jesus said. Yes, there is exclusivity when it comes to Christianity. How do I know that? Jesus said it. That settles it. Let's move on. So no little disturbance concerning the way. In other words, a pretty big disturbance. In fact, we could say that this is a series of disturbances, all because of the working of the Holy Spirit. This idea of being a milk toast Christian who doesn't overturn tables of money changers, beginning with those tables in your own life, is not the real gospel. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be an agent who causes other people to be uncomfortable at times. You will be uncomfortable yourself. 
because of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. It's all about transformation. And when a society is marching in a direction away from God, the more that that direction is an offense to God, the deeper the sin that's penetrating the culture, the more of an affront the gospel becomes, the more conflict that culture, that society, that nation is headed for, for one reason and for one reason only, because it is not following the ways of God. It's important to understand that. This idea that following Jesus will make me a person who gets along with everybody, that's not the same Bible. That doesn't come from the same Bible. The 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. That is a false, phony, fake gospel. It's no gospel at all. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be an agent who confronts people. Listen, salt doesn't just change distasteful things. It also stings if it gets into a wound. And this nation of ours is very wounded right now hurting for no other reason than we have rejected God and his ways. And I say that respectfully. I say that lovingly. I don't say that with anger. I say with deep, deep, deep concern. Our nation is facing difficulties, is deeply wounded because we have marched in a direction away from God, thumbed our nose at him, and have turned our back against him. So salt will sting if it gets into that wound. If you start preaching and teaching the truth about Jesus, the idea of there being absolute truth, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, because that's biblical, people aren't going to like that. If you talk and teach and preach and live and model and embrace the idea, people are not going to like that because the culture that wants nothing to do with the absolute teaching of Scripture doesn't like that teaching. Too bad. If you teach and preach that idolatry is a wrong thing, that you shouldn't love your money, that you can't take it with you, culture won't like that because we like comfort and convenience as a matter of what our culture is all about. The gospel, when it is correctly preached, not only flavors things that don't taste well, it also stings to hear certain things. It hurts to have salt placed into a wound, but yet it disinfects, it purifies, and it prevents that wound from festering. So stop apologizing for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the non-Jew. Jesus is still the hope of this nation. Have you given up on this nation? By the time we're done, you'll stop giving up, hopefully. You'll have some hope and you'll begin to realize how dare I give up on my family? How dare I give up on my neighborhood? How dare I give up in my workplace? How dare I give up on the United States of America? The gospel causes a big disturbance. Just make sure that the disturbance is not because you've got something hanging out of your nose, you know, like a bat or two hanging out in the bat cave. Make sure it's not because you're not taking a shower on a daily basis. Make sure it's not because the way you're delivering the gospel is abrasive. Make sure that you're not the obstacle. Make sure that the obstacle is the Lord Jesus Christ and the presentation, unadulterated presentation of the gospel. It causes an offense. It causes a great disturbance. In fact, this whole message series is called the book of Acts, How Christians Live. It's not how Christians lived even though in many instances we can look at what we're reading in the Bible and say, well, that's the way they used to live. It's not the way my life is. It's not the way my church is. Listen, you are not at a church that wants to play games when it comes to the gospel. You're not at a church that wants to play games when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying Holy Spirit in a charismatic Pentecostal way. 
What I'm saying is the Holy Spirit, when it comes to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and adjusting our lives and operating in the freedom that comes through Christ when we're submitted to Jesus and the Holy Spirit operates like an unkinked garden hose in our lives. I'm going home today to frozen pipes in my garage that I just realized this morning. I didn't have time to work on them. I just realized this morning they're frozen. My son says to me, oh, dad, I noticed that the pipes are not working. I can't turn on the the, the mud sink in the garage. Oh, my goodness. And then he says to me after I go out and I say, yeah, they're frozen solid. Yeah, I noticed it yesterday. <laughs> in a similar way, when you're not walking in surrender to Jesus Christ, when you've got an area of idolatry, when you've got an area that you're caressing and that you think is giving you so much bang for the buck, but it's actually keeping you in bondage, when you do that, it's like having a garden hose in your life that has a kink in it. You can have the, the end of that garden hose on full blast, but if there is a kink in that garden hose, you're only going to get a trickle coming out at the end. That's what idolatry will do in your life. That's what putting something on the throne of your life other than the Lord Jesus Christ will do to you. This is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. What is it that's keeping you from complete surrender to Jesus Christ? Then, When the gospel comes, it causes a great commotion. It causes a collision between your life and the life of Christ. Your values, your focus on what's important to you and the values of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of fertility, the daughter of Zeus, who was the head of all the Olympian gods. She was known as the virgin god who helped uh, in childbirth and also hunters, you'd be happy to know, she was the goddess that people would pray to for victory in the hunt. So if you wanted to get that buck, you know, you wanted to do that this time of the year, how many of you are hunters? Come on now. Of course you are. You know who you are. Don't start praying to Artemis. Pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you were a Greek, that's what you'd do. You'd pray to Artemis. You'd offer some sacrifice to Artemis. You'd give some money to Artemis, and you'd ask for a blessing in the midst of your hunt, all right? He made silver shrines to Artemis, Demetrius did. He brought no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, they made a lot of money off of these silver shrines. These he had gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, by the way, the name Paul means little one. Did you know that the name Saul meant great one? So God took this guy who was a great one, Saul, made him a little one, and now this little guy is having a huge impact. There's speculation as to why he was called Paul, little one. Well, maybe he was short in stature. There's historical documents that seem to indicate he was a short, kind of a heavyset guy. So there's hope for anybody who thinks they're insignificant in stature. God can use you in significant ways. How dare you say to God, you can't use me. God is using this guy, this little guy named Paul, in huge ways. And look how the gospel is going forth. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods, they're dead. Gods. We looked at that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, the silversmith trade where they made their livelihood, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now you're gonna get an understanding of how significant Artemis was in just a moment, so hold on to your seat. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In fact, that's just the beginning of it. Hold it under your seat. It gets better. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater that eventually came to seat 24,000 people. This is that kind of a theater. You think this auditorium's big? This ain't nothing. 24,000 people. You can go to Ephesus today and you can still see the remains of this theater, 100 feet high, carved into the, the landscape of this mountainside. They rush into this theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. By the way, Gaius is one of the guys that the Apostle Paul baptized as 1 Corinthians says, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, these are the civic rulers, they were elected for a year or so, and they could have that title after their appointed term was over, the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, that shows you the influence of this small guy. He now has influence with the civic leaders, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. This is a dangerous environment. You've stirred up quite a tumult here. Don't go in there. Now, some cried out one thing, some another for the assembly. And by the way, that's the same word that's used for church, ecclesia. And some churches could be seen to be in an uproar and kind of a mess and kind of a chaotic situation, but not this one, all right? That's the word that's used there, this assembly. They had come together for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, they carry this on. Why are they doing this? Because Jews abhorred idolatry and they wanted to stick it in Alexander's face and stick it in the face of every Jew. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. The Ephesians are better than the Jews. Our God's bigger and better and better and more beautiful than your God. For two hours, they're carrying on with this. And guess what? It's not just Jews who are concerned with idolatry. It's also Christians. At least we should be. We might not have idols like the Greeks did in that day, like Artemis or Athena. We have a whole different set of gods and goddesses that have taken up residence at the center of our lives. They're the ones around which our lives revolve. For two hours, they're carrying on. This is a riot. When the town clerk, this is the highest civil authority, this is the guy who would have been charged the accountant of the temple money, by the way, the temple where Artemis was residing, the, the main idol of Artemis about a mile and a half outside of the, the center of Ephesus was this structure, the temple 
of Artemis that we're going to look at in just a moment. The Temple of Artemis, a huge structure, and the highest official would be the town clerk. You might say, well, who wants to bother with the clerk? No, this is a, a person of high repute and tremendous influence. The registrar, the record keeper, he would be the accountant of the money in the Temple of Artemis. So he comes out. He quieted the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So he's just speaking matter-of-factly, according to this legend of how Artemis got there in the temple, trying to bring some sense into them, trying to squelch this riot, seeing that these things cannot be denied, although Paul would certainly deny them. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and they're proconsuls. There are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, meaning the planned scheduled assembly, not in this ridiculous cacophonic riot that's happening right now. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now I want to show you some photographs right up here on the screen. Let's put that first one up there. My family and I were down in Nashville, Tennessee, and they have a life-size replica of the Parthenon, which resided in Athens, Greece. And here's to show you how big it is. There it is, the Parthenon, with my family in front there. And let's see the next slide. That shows you how big it is. There's, I don't know who that character is. Looks a lot like my son leaning up against one of the columns in this reproduction. And there is the 42-foot-high replica of Athena, the goddess of Athens, a 42-foot-high replica of the original 42-foot-high, one made out of ivory and gold. This one is made out of plaster and covered with almost 24-karat gold, and it's just massive. And there in front of it, you can see my two sons standing in front. Now, here's a video that we made down there. If the sound's not good enough, then get that sound up to the right volume so we don't miss anything. Let's look at that next one here, which is the video. I'm here in Nashville, Tennessee, inside a life-size replica of the Parthenon, and behind me is the statue of the goddess Athena. This is a replica of what existed in the original Parthenon in the city of Athens, Greece, which still has some remnants there today. This is a good reminder for us today of how the Greeks worshiped and served their gods and goddesses. In the book of Acts in chapter 19, we can read the historic account of the Apostle Paul, who was in Ephesus preaching and teaching the gospel, and a riot broke out for about two hours because Demetrius, who was a silversmith, was concerned about how Paul's preaching about Jesus, in contrast to the Greek goddess Artemis, was a threat to their culture and theology. It's a great reminder for us today about the importance of bringing truth to bear, no matter what idols and practices may be present in society. So it's a great reminder that the gospel does indeed come into conflict with the culture and it's important to preach and teach the truth and to bring Jesus into whatever situation and scenarios we may have. So you can look at the situation for yourself in Acts chapter 19 and in the meantime, it's a good reminder to bring Jesus into every area of our lives. Keep looking up, there's no place else worth looking. And you notice I'm wearing the same thing because we were in Nashville this morning. We were in Nashville this morning. 
Next slide. I want to show you some other things here, but we've got here. Here's something from looking at the bottom of this statue up. In the hand of Athena is the goddess Nikkei, the god of victory. Okay? And that god is about to crown Athena with this crown, this garland of victory. By the way, Athena is the goddess of war. Okay? So victory is kind of important if you go into war. Next slide. Another angle there, see the snake at the foot there? This is based on the archaeological discovery that they made in Athens here, and it's an artist's rendering pretty close to what the original, to give you an idea of what it would have looked like. Next one. Backside of the shield, where you can see the inside of the shield was painted, beautifully painted, very ornate. Next one. And here at the foot are some of the Greek gods and goddesses that are under there. You'll remember in Acts chapter 14, they said that Barnabas they likened to Zeus, and Paul, they likened to Hermes because he was the chief speaker. They thought that Barnabas and Paul were among the Greek gods that had come down from heaven. And they had to help set the record straight with all of that. So here at the foot are some of the gods and goddesses. Now there at the center, you'll see this guy right here, the fourth one in, carrying that staff. That's Poseidon. That's, that's the god of Poseidon. Right next to him is Guess who? Artemis. That's a rendering of what Artemis looked like, the one that we're reading about in Ephesians chapter 19. So I wanted to give you an idea of how massive that thing is, the Parthenon, which was in Athens, Greece. To give you an idea of Athena, the Greek goddess that was worshipped, the goddess of war that was worshipped in Athens, and then help you understand that she was nothing compared to what the Ephesians had done with Artemis in Ephesus. The temple to Artemis was larger than a football field, four times larger than the Parthenon, four times larger than that. It was among the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Ephesians and people from all around the Greek-speaking world would get together for an entire week-long festival to Artemis to worship her and to offer sacrifices to her and to buy their silver and other kinds of trinkets to worship and adore and honor her. And so now you begin to understand the tumult that was caused by this little guy named Paul who happened upon the Greek culture because he was led by the Holy Spirit to help them turn from lifeless, meaningless gods to the living and the true God. Just like the Thessalonians, just like the Corinthians, just like those in the Greek-speaking world that we've been reading about in the book of Acts, we're seeing that the gospel brought to bear on people who need to hear the gospel on a culture that is marching in a direction away from Almighty God can be redeemed when somebody has the audacity to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just yesterday, just yesterday, less than 24 hours ago, I, your senior pastor, was wondering if I can have any kind of a significance for the glory of God. If what I'm doing is valuable and worthwhile and significant and I get discouraged at times. My wife gets discouraged at times. And why am I saying that? Because you might say, but Pastor Mike, look at what you do and bringing the word of God and look at this. I want to bring it down to you. If I struggle 
with wondering whether or not God can use me, insignificant as I am, for the glory of God. I bet you do at times too. You wonder if it makes any difference what you say and what you do in your family life. My family seems to be going in a direction that's opposite of God. Is it even worthwhile? Can God even use me? You wonder working with teens and students and children, is it worthwhile when so many lives of so many teens are messed up? They come from wrecked, disheveled, divided families. And you wonder, can I have any kind of impact whatsoever? Oh, what's the use? And you get discouraged. You come to a church and you can experience a great worship service on a Sunday morning or during the course midweek, but then you get out there in the real world and you see what's happening in our nation and you say to yourself, how can God even use me? I feel like a drop in a huge pool that has no significance and no kind of impact that can be of any use to God whatsoever. You can be downtown working with people who you see all kinds of problems. It goes on and on and on and on and on. Listen, you're human and I'm human and so was the Apostle Paul. And I'm telling you with God as our witness here today, that if God could take a guy who was great in his own eyes, if God could take a guy who was great in his own eyes named Saul and turn him into a guy who had a name Paul, which meant little, and use that little guy to have such a huge impact to turn the city of Ephesus upside down for the glory of God, then there ain't nothing too big in your family life for the Holy Spirit when he gets a hold of you. When God fills your life, When you let God fill your life and you become a person, a man, woman, boy or girl who is filled with the Holy Spirit, you will by default, you have God's word on it. You will become an agent of change. You will become a counterculturalist. You will go against what society is saying is right. You'll show society when they're wrong and you'll do it with humility and you'll do it with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And God will use you because God always uses an individual who is filled with the Holy Spirit. He always uses people who are insignificant and small and nothing to look at by the outward appearance. But it's not what people are looking at at the outward appearance. They need to see the Holy Spirit flowing through your life. And when they do, you will become a little guy for Jesus, a little girl for Jesus, who has tremendous impact in your family, tremendous impact in the workplace, tremendous impact in the neighborhood, tremendous impact in your state, tremendous impact in this nation. This nation needs to be turned around. Your personal life needs to be turned around. Your family most likely needs to be turned around. You say, well, my family's walking with Jesus and walk with Jesus even more deeply in deeper surrender. Your neighborhood probably needs to turn around. The nation is the accumulation of our individual lives, of our families, and our houses of worship. It is time for you to consider yourself as being nothing significant, a little person in the eyes of Almighty God who is a candidate for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that God can use you to change culture wherever you are in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. How dare we say to God, but I'm a nobody. That's right. But Jesus is a somebody. And when you let Jesus fill you up through the courtesy of the Holy Spirit, you, me, we who are nobodies become somebodies who are powerful vessels in the hand of almighty God. Give up your idol. Give up 
the idol. Give up that thing or those things that are keeping you from the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, and you too have God's word on it. This is how Christians live. Christians live with the powerful filling of the Holy Spirit and they become powerful agents of change wherever they are. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.